Hello, folks. An extra special bonus episode this week on the free feed. We've got a episode I did with Rax King about Baz Luhrmann's Elvis, previously behind the low culture boil paywall, but now as a promotion free to you on our feed. So check it out. Listen, we had a really, really good time with this one. If you're interested in more great content like this, check out Low Culture Boil with Rax and Amber Rolo. Great podcast. Really fun, really funny, really smart at patreon.com slash lowcultureboil. Enjoy. Welcome to Low Culture Boil, the trash podcast about trash culture. I'm your host, Rax King, and today I am joined by the guy who also lives in my house, Sean KB from the Antifada. Sean, welcome to our house. Yeah, hi. Thanks. Thanks for thanks for having me be here in the house and <laughs> recording on my computer. Yeah, essentially the story of this episode, which I have teased before a few times, we just never got it together to record it until now, is that... Sean lives in my house and has been available this entire time, so I really have no excuse. I'm happy to be available. I think this is my third time on the podcast, so that's very, very exciting. And it's it's good to be here talking about an exquisite piece of (laughs) cultural production. So last time we were together on the show, we were talking about Cop Rock, which is very good so good if you have not watched that botchko shit yet you gotta get on it gotta get yourself a botchko but tonight our business is not botchko business it's more important very important it is boz lerman's 2022 biopic of elvis presley elvis hell yes yeah so we i mean to just dive into a random point because the notes that we took on this movie extensive run for a good five pages i've got five pages of, of scratch chicken scratch here just all about this incredible artifact and where we've decided to begin apparently is with the fact that towards the end of boz lorman's elvis about elvis presley the eponymous elvis presley sings his song Suspicious Minds Great on song. on uh, a Vegas stage, which, as we all probably know, begins with the line, Caught in a trap. I'm caught in a trap. I can't break free. That's not right. Because I love you too much, baby. Okay, yeah, there it is. Yeah. He got, you know, a third of that wrong, but <laughs> caught in a trap is the salient point. And as he's singing this... His manager slash villainous Jew of a Dutchman. Most anti-Semitic portrayal I think Tom Hanks has done this year. <laughs> of a non-Jewish character. Yeah. I mean, there's there's some doubts about that, but he's not canonically Jewish, Canonically, this guy. he's not as Jewish and as shysty as they make him seem in Tom Hanks' highly anti-Semitic portrayal of Colonel Tom Parker. But during... Elvis Presley singing about how he's caught in a trap, Colonel Tom Parker is, in fact, at that very moment, signing a contract that will truly catch Elvis Presley in the same (laughs) manner of the the very trap of which he sings of being caught inside of is the same trap into which... Colonel Tom has trapped him. We're watching this and we're like, you know, Elvis is up on stage doing his damnedest, you know, incredible artist played by who in this movie? Austin Butler. Austin. Relative newcomer, Austin Butler. He was recommended by Denzel Washington. Highly handsome man, I will say. Very good Elvis impression, too. Austin Butler is up there on stage doing an excellent Elvis. They're at the Las Vegas Casino, the International in, I almost said international, in which Elvis Presley in real life was trapped, and he's up there, and we're like, Elvis, don't you realize you're <laughs> caught in a trap, the same trap which you're singing about is indeed the trap that your manager is setting for you, sir, 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 you're being trapped. Do you not recognize, you simple bastard, the irony of this situation into which you yourself... We could, we're going to do this for just the next hour. If you simply had had a more suspicious mind, you would realize that you were being caught in a trap of your manager's making. 
And this on movie and on. is so on the nose. I mean, that's what you gotta love about it. Is I mean, that the whole is thing just... is exactly that heavy-handed. Like, but... I we're really milking it. And yeah. last night when we watched this oh movie, God. we were blazed out blazed. of our minds. We literally like honestly in the theater three months ago, we were fucking blazed too. Well, you was... you can't watch this movie sober you and get can't. anything out of it. No. I don't think. I feel like the you know you need critics to... were kind of di- uh, divided actually. Like a lot of them really loved it, and a lot of them didn't like it and i feel like the dividing principle there is who was just drunk or stoned or tripping balls in the theater and who went in there sober as a judge yeah you you know you have to see this movie the way that elvis presley himself (laughs) would have seen it elvis presley uh you know who was uh serviced by a guy named dr nick in this film elvis presley who up to his death in what 1974 was it? Or 76, maybe? Had a team of scientists in Basel, <laughs> Switzerland, at the Bosch Pharmaceutical Factory, at the Sorbonne, at Harvard, <laughs> and at Yale, devising new, unique, bespoke ways to get this motherfucker high. He was high in ways that people haven't been high since then. And if yeah. you don't go into this movie with that sort of mindset, you will never understand what this God, what this King Baz Luhrmann is really trying to portray, which is a man who is trapped, He's trapped by drug use. Verily is he caught in a trap of his own making and the making of he who has trapped him. I'm, we're going to stop doing yeah. this now. We'll probably come back to it like a bunch of times. But you are trapped in this episode. <laughs> You've gotten uh, six minutes and 12 seconds in. You, you can't leave now. We so, got you. I'm actually, rather than starting off like a normal person would by talking about this movie, I'm going to start off by quoting an article by uh, New York Times television writer Jack Gould from 1956 when Elvis's performances were first garnering national attention. And scandalizing large parts of the country. You have never heard pearl clutching like this oh, your entire rest of your life. Give so. me some pearl clutching. Okay, I'm going to read for a while, but it's worth it. Uh, Mr. Presley initially disturbed adult viewers and instantly became a martyr in the eyes of his teenage following for his striptease behavior (laughs) on last spring's Milton Berle program. Then with Steve Allen, he was much more sedate. On the Sullivan program, he injected movements of the tongue (laughs) and indulged in wordless singing that were that were really singularly distasteful. Mm. Now I'm gonna skip to the biggest leap in logic you could imagine. Yeah, please. Quite possibly, Presley just happened to move in where society has failed the teenager. <laughs> what? <laughs> Certainly, modern youngsters have been subjected to a great deal of censure and perhaps too little understanding. Oh, how generous of you! Yeah. Greater in their numbers than ever before. I don't think that's. Correct. Oh, baby boo. Yeah, no, it's a little early. Then ever before in 1956, there's not more of them. You're just annoyed by them now. Also, you just invented them. Teenagers were literally just invented like five years before this. You can't make them up and and then get mad at them. Like generational cohorts are just a type of guy you make up to get mad at. It's like Twitter. (laughs) Greater in their numbers than ever before. They may have found in Presley a rallying point. A nationally prominent figure who seems to be on their side. And just as surely, there are limitless teenagers who cannot put up with the boy, either vocally or calisthenically. What the fuck are you talking about? He means they can't fuck. He's talking about kids who cannot do the sexy moves that Elvis Presley can do. Okay, and that was like a confirmed phenomenon, was that just as teenage girls loved Elvis Presley, teenage boys... He did Elvis Presley because I mean, he was, you know, enough. Mr. Gyrating at, at their girlfriends, and I assume. If this movie is any indication, women were just having orgasms left and right. Just within, like, st- if they stepped within 50 yards of this man, they were just creaming. So, I mean, fair enough. If you're the 1955 boyfriend, you're not too happy with that. Yeah, and that's... Uh, what Boz Lerman certainly wants us to believe, the first scene that he has of Elvis performing is at uh, is on a, I think, television program called the Louisiana Hayride. It was like the kind of more daring cousin of the Grand Ole Opry. Right. And the, the fucking melodrama with which he shoots this performance, he, it's like 
dark and and a spotlight, a single spotlight uh. on our boy. And Colonel Tom in his fat suit and prosthetic nose, just looming <laughs> just, in the wings. Just doing the happy merchant hands in yeah. the background. Absolutely. <laughs> anti-Semitically. Just anti-Semitically putzing around. And the like. he opens his mouth to sing, and it gets off to a slow start, and he doesn't have the audience yet. And then, as in every single biopic, he grabs him by the balls all oh, of a yeah. sudden. But how does he do it? By wiggling his dick explicitly. It is just, you see in his pink pink pants, just dick flopping for like five minutes. And every time his dick goes from one side of his waist to the other, just popping around in there like an angry (laughs) snake, they show the face of another girl just creaming. And then her boyfriend just mauling. It's just... It's very evocative, I must say. And probably relatively true to life, if this New York Times guy is any indication. Yeah, and this whole Times article, which I will spare you most of, is just him, like, hand-wringing about how society has failed the teenager because, you know, what... What well-adjusted teenager would find anything of value in a dick wiggler like (laughs) Elvis Presley? Like, the whole fucking article is like that. First of all, I am a writer myself. I would give anything, any part of my life, I would slit your throat, Sean, comfortably. Okay. If only for a job where every day of my life I could just, like, roll out of bed at about noon and type up some bullshit like, Elvis is bad for teenagers, <laughs> and collect a motherfucker of a paycheck, don't, I am certain. Don't forget you're rolling over at noon and you're drinking a martini, too. You know, yeah, it's that's like right. a baller lifestyle that they lived at that time. To do what? To, like, pearl clutch about uh, popular culture. I mean, to be fair, and I think that Boz Lerman movie portrays this in a really good way is that this is like the birth of maybe not the culture industry per se because Adorno was writing about that already before this and it had existed with Hollywood from the 19 teens and 20s or whatever but like a new era in cultural production you know and this is this movie so much is about because it's deeper even than just a giant dong flopping around in some pink satin <laughs> pants all right although that's a lot of it i mean it's it's really about this sort of dialectic between art on the one hand and commerce on the other which is like a well-honed and old story but i think it's done really really well if not slightly uh, anti-semitically it is done very very well because it's about the creation it's about a man elvis presley who has incredible talent who's incredibly sensitive, and as we'll talk about, I think, is a pre- pretty progressive for his time, certainly when it comes to race uh, and politics in general. This man who is a phenomenon in life and how he was used in order to make other people so much money and how that ended up really affecting the culture and ultimately, of course, destroying not just his family, but him. And I think that something the movie maybe doesn't do all that effectively is talk about the fact that, like, yeah, he was this massive phenomenon. He was basically generated to be the king of rock and roll. Like, he didn't start calling himself that. It was just bestowed on him by the culture. But he wasn't really a creator. You know, he didn't write his own music. We all know that. And the movie kind of fudges that a little bit. It definitely shows him seeming to write music that he definitely did not write. (laughs) But, like, also... He would probably be the first to admit, like, he's not a creator. His artistry, such as it is, is not about innovating or making something new. It's very much about paying homage. I don't know why I said that so fruity. Homage. <laughs> and um, and beyond that, just, like, making the music that he loves, that he's always loved to listen to. Because I think it is... And performing it, too. I think it is very much accurate to say that... Throughout his life, Elvis Presley pretty much had a sterling record on, like, racial civil rights. I mean, from the time he was very, very young, he and his family lived in the black part of town, and every biography of him ever written makes a point of saying, like, he just never bought into the idea that there was a difference between him and black artists, but he is not only a cultural product, but a cultural product of the segregationist South, and I think that to the extent that his record on race relations can be marred by anything, 
It's that he bought into that. Like, he was playing those segregated shows, same as every other performer at that time. He wasn't making big statements about refusing to play the Chitlin circuit. He wasn't a mover or a shaker. He kind of fell into this role by accident on his part and was pushed into it externally by Colonel Sanders, such as it was, Mm. Colonel Tom Parker, who, by the way, in real life did not have a fucking cartoon Dutch accent. (laughs) (laughs) He had, like, a southern accent. He had cultivated one over the years. So, like, everything about the choice to cast Tom Hanks in this role and have him play it the way he did is absolutely bizarre and unforgivable and, like, the worst thing he's ever done, maybe. But it's also, like, he was pushed into this by a... By a Chitlin Circuit Carney, you know right, what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is another really interesting part of the movie, and I think that one that I, I think is pretty profound when you think about um, this sort of like entire body of like work and history that's passed down to all of us people who were born either in the late twentieth century or oof, even the early twenty first century, is that. Um, you know, there was this older tradition of entertainment. Um, there was the vaudeville circuit. There was the minstrel circuit. Uh, there was uh, carnivals. And the the great culture industries of the 1950s and 60s that brought us rock and roll, that brought us, you know, all this boomer culture or whatever, had this older sort of tradition to them of not just artistry, but especially hucksterism that sort of pulls itself through the 20th century. Elvis and his relationship to Colonel Parker being like this really interesting sort of melding of these two dynamics of like this uniquely American capitalist impulse with the merchandise and with like the, the, the making of like of superstardom on the one hand, but also this older really like the snowman thing they keep talking about this movie where you're like trying to get one over on people or whatever. There's like this movie does a lot of things really, really well. The visuals in this movie, I think, are wacky, mm-hmm. but also really, really entertaining and incredible. And the story it tells is so affecting that I was just recording with Andy, my uh, co-host on the Antifada, and he said when he saw the Elvis movie in the theater, he practically cried at the end. I for sure cried at the end when they do that performance of Unchained Melody. I mean, we, even just seeing it again last night, we both had chills, big time. Oh my time. god, yeah. And I think that, like... For all the arguments over the value of Elvis that there have been over the decades, and I think that there are legitimate points to be made on both sides of that argument, I don't think anyone could say with a straight face that there wasn't something distinctly special about him as a performer. He's just, his magnetism was off the charts, and you can say and be correct that everything that he did as an artist, black artists did first and better, Absolutely right on that front. No argument. But what you could never, ever say to me and have me agree with you is that he wasn't just a physically beautiful specimen, especially when he was younger. Yeah. And that he wasn't like a magnetic performer, especially because he was so shy. Right. Yeah. So shy and like not that good at, you know, intersong banter, stuff like that, that we now think of as important for a performer. He wasn't that kind of performer. Everything that he gave, he gave to the music and the performing of the music. He didn't seem all that good at being, you know, Elvis the character. And he wore his heart on his sleeve, too. He kind of like, I mean, was James Dean before or he was at the same time as Elvis comes about? He was about, af- the same about time. the same time. He like Elvis becomes a type of template. I feel like for a certain type of person that arises at a certain place in time, and one whose imprint sort of continues uh, through America, which is like the shy, heartbroken guy who wears his heart on his sleeve, but is like tremendously talented and gives everything gives so much to the audience that it actually destroys him. And this is a character that I think pops up, like the tragic artist, basically. He becomes this uh, in America, and he really defines what cool is for forever after that. And yeah. Baz Luhrmann makes him look really fucking cool. <laughs> yeah, I think that something Baz Luhrmann does really well in this movie is translate for a modern audience how fucking cool 
Elvis must have been to like little white kids at the time who were supposed to be listening to what country music, I guess. Country music or like, um, I don't know, um, like Pat Boone, Pat Boone, or maybe like Sinatra or something. Yeah, yeah, crooner shit, right? And Sinatra too was was very cool, but he was cool in like a polished way. And I think that you know, there's that famous album cover of Elvis Presley's self titled album, the one that uh. The Clash used, kind of, they paid homage to with the cover of London Calling, where he's holding up the guitar and he's, like, screaming into the mic. And it it just looks, the only thing I can say to describe it is it looks really punk rock. And that must have been what the vibe was at the time, was, like, for, again, these same little white kids, this is not something that you've had access to before. I mean, Elvis was, like, going to bars and and nightclubs and... uh, Memphis is Beale Street, the the black part of town, and he was fluent in this black music, and what he inarguably did was translate it for a white audience in a way that, you know, you can say it was good that he did it, or you can say that it's not, but he definitely opened doors for this new class of people, the teenagers, to like, okay, what are we going to do? We're teenagers. What does that mean? This is a whole new concept that... Well, we can go on dates and we can go for drives. We have cars now. And something else we can do is watch this man wiggle his dick (laughs) and see what it stirs up. Yeah, totally. The, The visuals in this movie. Well, I will say this. When we saw this in the theaters, I remember you and me when it first came out. We, were we think- saw it like the day it yeah. came out. We were so stoked. We were thinking to ourselves, who the fuck is this movie for? Is this because it's a hagiography of a guy who's even like pre-boomer, right? Because he's born in the 1930s. He's I guess if Elvis was alive today, he'd be almost 90. He'd be like greatest generation, like my grandfather's age. And it was like boomers and pre-boomers who were really, really into them. But if you look at the way that this movie is like the most expensive MTV video of all time. It's designed in this sort of frenetic capacity to seem like it's supposed to appeal to Zoomers. Is this a movie that's trying to like get younger people hyped on him when they put all like the modern music and they put like rap, you know, in remixes Very and everything? Very corny that they did that. Like, what, who is this movie for? Is this for like Boomers and their Zoomer grandchildren to watch together? Or is this for, like, millennials to to feel cool about, I don't know, the 1950s again? Do you remember when we went to see it in the theater, the woman on the other side of us was, like, maybe 70 years old. She appeared to be, and she was seeing it by herself. Periodically throughout the movie, I kept, like, sneaking looks at her, trying to determine, you know, whether this was a movie for her and her ilk, whether there was something that boomers would be getting out of this movie. Because the Boz Lerman idiom is anti-boomer. My dad and I went to see Great Gatsby, his take on Great Gatsby in the theater together, and I kind of thought, you know, the Bob's Lerman take on these classic stories is maybe a fun compromise for me, a millennial, and my boomer dad. We can't always figure out what movie we want to see together, you know? Maybe that's a reasonable compromise. It was not. <laughs> he did hated not. He every hated second it. of it. Yeah. And like it it makes sense why. It's it's just a completely frenetic, almost teenager like aesthetic. Yeah. It's it's made for a teenager's attention span. Exactly. I think. It's the attention span that I feel like would really throw boomers the most. I mean, I have here in my notes the words captivating bat shittery. I mean, that is what Baz Luhrmann does. He makes completely bat shit visuals. He does like these captivating scenes that really bring you into the whole thing. But it's so over the top and it's so fast and it's so like visually stunning but also like baroque at the same time Mm -hmm. that if you're somebody that grew up with elvis and you're watching this thing you're gonna have a reaction like those kids had when they first saw elvis but not in a good way you're gonna be like ah what the fuck is this oh my god i've never seen anything like this before they Ah." desecrated him (laughs) yeah yeah i think that uh his his screenwriting you know dialogue and whatnot is absolute trash Everything he does... It's trash. (laughs) It is trash, though. Remember that moment when fucking Colonel Mordecai Parker's... (laughs) You know, he's white? He's white? And they repeat it like... They have, like, the the camera moves up fast onto people's face, and they kept going, he's white? This is before they knew that Elvis Presley was white, and they thought he was making race music. It just repeats over and over again, like... 
again, completely on the fucking nose. Incredible choices were made there. Yeah, and the the entire movie is written like that, you know, all the and all of his movies are written like that. I mean, I remember when we saw The Great Gatsby together, he made the questionable choice of adding a whole bunch of stuff that wasn't in the book. Right. And you could just tell so easily, like, every single line of dialogue that Boz Lerman or whoever helped him write the movie, that they wrote themselves... And you could tell immediately when they transitioned back to F. Scott Fitzgerald yeah. because, like, they can't even imitate anyone else. He yeah. and his his team. They can only ever sound like heart on my sleeve, Boz Lerman telling what he always thinks is the greatest story ever told. Every movie he's ever made is the greatest story ever told. Because if you look at his, I guess maybe with the exception of Moulin Rouge, which I haven't seen since like it came out. He's got this whole shtick, Boz Lerman, where he takes like a very well-known story or he takes a biopic and he he gives it the Boz Lerman charm. He makes it captivating bat shittery, you know? Mm-hmm. He's got this incredible, it's almost like a grift that he's got going on as he takes like a famous story like Romeo and Juliet, for example, that we all know, and he like twists it and turns it into this sort of like... Again, captivating bat shittery. And he does that uh, with this particular story in a way that... You know, he's Australian, you told me. I feel like Boz Lerman, in his in the total over-the-top Baroque way that he does all the visuals and shit like that, it takes an Australian <laughs> to really understand America and what Americans want. You know, he understands the Great Gatsby story. He adds to the Great Gatsby story because he's fascinated by these over-the-top, powerful and rich people and their stories of tragedy. And he's, like, got this whole sort of industry that he's got now. We were joking that there should be a Boz Lerman biopic of everybody. They should make a thousand little apprentices of Boz Lerman. Do one about James Brown. Do one about Hank Williams. Do one about Woody Guthrie. Do one about (laughs) The Clash. Do one about... About the Ramones. I want to see Boz Lerman do the fucking Ramones, man. I want to see Boz Lerman's Lou Reed. Yeah. Fucking imagine it. He would just be like the song Heroin remixed with like, I don't know, Kanye West or something <laughs> like that. And then and it would just be like a slow motion shot of Lou Reed just like shooting dope for like 20 <laughs> minutes while an entire gang of like circus performers dance around him and the world goes topsy-turvy. And for some reason, like a diamond ring opens up into the petals of a flower and then you're brought inside of it. And for no reason, there's just like letters in the sky because he loves yeah. to put like He can't Tupelo, just have a normal subtitle. It's got to be like block letters floating in space. But let's Let's not limit it to just performers. I want to see Boz Lerman does the president. Yeah, Nixon. Yeah, Boz Lerman presents Nixon. Boz Lerman presents Gerald Ford. Oh my God, can you imagine? Boz Lerman presents the defenestration of Prague. Boz Lerman presents the Passion of the Christ. Absolutely. He's the only person who should be allowed to make movies. I agree, because yeah. other directors... You know, they've got some just wonderful movies, and then they've got some that are maybe a little bit boring. We're watching, like, a Coen Brothers B movie right oh, now. Yeah, yeah. It's it's enjoyable, but it's not it's a, a great cerebral. movie. Yeah. Every single Baz Luhrmann movie, you will have the time of your fucking life yeah. in the theater. I want Baz Luhrmann to make a film version of Marx's Capital, all three volumes. He would make that shit lit. Now, you can't tell this because you're not sitting in the room with him, but as he said that, he did rip a fat vape cloud. <laughs> and, yeah, that's I think that's the vibe that makes sense to bring. <laughs> but, like, something else that I think we just, we have gone as long as we possibly can without talking about this. Why did they put Tom Hanks who we all knew going in was in this movie in a prosthetic face and a fat suit. Yeah. And it's it's like a Party City quality yeah, fat suit. it's like too. a My Pillow, like Mike Lindell fucking fat suit, man. He literally walks around looking like he's got two pillows stuffed down him. He looks and like, like the Michelin Man. He looks like a like a like a Jewish caricature Michelin man. Why do this? Why nobody guess what? It's the year 2022. Nobody knows what Colonel Tom Parker looks like. Right. You can make him look like anything. This motherfucker's been dead for 30 years. 
And if I may actually broaden that complaint, because it's not just Boz Lerman who did this, although he did it to particularly insane effect, I think I'm a little tired of one of the big draws of a movie or TV show being the intensity of the prosthetics used to make an actor physically resemble whoever they're playing. Like, if they're playing a a person who actually existed. That shit drives me insane. Do acting! Do acting! It's distracting. It's fucking distracting. Am I looking at Tom Hanks, or am I looking at the happy merchant? Right. Tell me which one it is. And I don't think that Tom Hanks was right for this role to begin with. No. Despite, I mean, completely notwithstanding all the insane choices that were not his fault, like the fat suit and the accent, I assume, was not his idea. But, like, he wasn't right for this role anyway. But my point is that you, this person is a professional actor. His whole life is about, like, learning about another guy and then deciding how to behave so that we think he's that guy. We know, going into the theater, that that's Tom Hanks and not the actual Colonel Tom Parker, who is is dead. Which is why... Austin Powers or whatever the kid's name is who does who plays Elvis is so good because he was an unknown kid you know what I mean you can actually like fall into the role like Sean Penn is in this movie too and it's completely no distracting reason. yeah like, why why are you distracting us with like Sean Penn and his five lines just like smoking cigarettes in the corner man let us right. watch the fucking movie I know you had a huge buzzard and you're like ah just Let's throw $5 million at Sean Penn and have him sit in a corner and smoke cigarettes. But you didn't have to do that. Yeah, it adds nothing. And it stuff like that, once again, raises the question of who is this for? Who is because, this for? Because, like, 20-year-olds yeah. are not going to be like, oh, my God, that's Tom, Sean Penn. That's, that's Tom Hanks from Big. Yeah. From 1984. <laughs> from Bosom Buddies. <laughs> you know, Forrest Gump, that movie that came out 10 years before I was fucking yeah. born. Band of Brothers. My dad loves that. He makes makes us watch that every Thanksgiving. Like, it's... Who is that supposed to be fun for? So that implies it's for boomers. Maybe. And and, and so you're... But Austin Butler, like, he's unknown to us, but he was a a Disney Channel star. That's for Uh, Zoomers. That's for Zoomers through and through. And you can't have it both ways. This movie is a test about whether you could have it both ways. I think the only way that you could truly enjoy this is if you're in the middle, if you're a millennial. Because we all of us were gifted... Like, high-handedly, <laughs> boomer culture. If as, it is an interesting word for it. I think forced upon. Forced is. upon. We, we Like, the ambient energy we all yeah. had as young people was boomer as fuck. And I don't and, know about you, but, like, I as a little kid with fucking stars in my eyes, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, I believed people like my dad when they were like, Led Zeppelin's the greatest band ever of all time. 1968 was the coolest year of all time. Guess what? To all the boomers who don't listen to this podcast, your stuff is just fine. Just like our stuff is fine. But the mythology around it that was created, like, are you trying to get Zoomers into this mythology? Because guess what? They've seen what the boomers have done, motherfucker. Yeah. I don't think they buy... It took me a long time to get out of the boomers boomer mythology and i'm out of it i've been out of it you think zoomers are gonna be like wow these people were so cool back then i really want to celebrate my grandpa because he was an (laughs) elvis fan shut the fuck up man yeah very weird we're the we're the last generation that that worked on the the boomer supremacy thing but like even we are no we no longer have the wool over our eyes well you and i just watched almost famous and it's really fucking funny from the perspective of this music was fine you did all that over music that was fine (laughs) it was fine it all like in 2008 you know like the entire world that entire world just sort of like started to crumble and recede and yet now at this in the year of our lord 2022 we're still meant to like look upon this generation as these fucking angelic cultural gifts that they gave ever they made the world peace and love and they brought freedom and civil rights or whatever motherfucker look around you y'all what ruined did they the polar really bears yeah you ruined everything you ruined all the animals that we like and you fucked up all the water and you continue to have all the decent paying jobs you yeah. won't leave you own all the houses yeah you're buying up all the houses man like when we were kids all that stuff i wasn't gonna buy a house when i was 10 yeah. years old it wasn't even it was the furthest thing from my mind i could listen to people of my parents generation when they're talking about how sick neil young is like <laughs> yeah. he's, he's he's good he's good 
Neil Young is great, yeah. Almost famous when we watched it again, and this is related to the movie because now we're talking about, you know, again, what this is for. Watching it again, like just a few weeks ago, it was fucking cringe. Yeah. I always thought of it like, oh, cool, the 70s, rock and roll music, a kid who's really into it. And you look at it now and it's fucking cringe. This movie is not cringe because of the captivating bat shittery that it does. He like, can't ever be cringe. He leans, you know how. He like, leans too far into it. When you're a boxer, they tell you, like, first thing that they tell you is that when somebody's punching at you you lean into it you do the opposite of what your body wants to do you lean into it because it cuts off their momentum if you lean away from it they're they're gonna have extra momentum and it's gonna hurt extra hard when they get you and Boz Lerman's entire approach to filmmaking is I'm leaning the fuck in yeah. to everything people could possibly say about me and a lot of the time it works he takes the source material makes the most psychotic choices about it and whereas another person would back up, they back away from the punch and be like, no way I'm going to make uh, anti-Semitic character Tom <laughs> Parker, played by Tom Hanks, waddle around in a casino <laughs> while the room spins around him and go, money, 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 <laughs> while some fucking, while young Yeezy or whatever plays in the background. Nobody would make that choice, except he does. And he fucking pulls it off. You have to respect it. The painstaking detail that he puts into these into his movies into is really incredible. Shot. There are shots in this, and he loves to do this, and I actually appreciate it. CGI reconstructions of, like, towns in the South in the 1950s. Uh, he does, like, a CGI reproduction of what LAX looks like in the 1960s. There's no <laughs> reason to do that. You didn't have to put a million-dollar CGI budget to get... LAX to look exactly as it did when, what, fucking Elvis Presley took his last plane flight and he flies into the clouds and he's dead, you know, in 1976 or whatever. But he does it. He yeah. fucking does it. You gotta you gotta respect it, man. If you're gonna have all this fucking no-good Hollywood money floating around anyways, give it to Boz Lerman. Don't give it to some, you know, to some make the... So, or, or the to make another Marvel movie. Fucking Boz Lerman should be making all the Marvel movies. Oh, man, what he could do <laughs> with a Marvel budget. I would actually watch budget. one. Oh, my God, yeah. I would watch a Boz Lerman superhero movie. Oh, yeah. I would watch a Boz Lerman samurai movie. I would watch fucking <laughs> Boz Lerman's Zatoichi, the blind samurai. I would love to know what insane mechanisms he would come up with for, like, fucking... The last duel. Why? Why Ridley Scott get to direct that? He did an okay job, I guess. All this stuff. But at the end of the day, what's the most important to me about this movie? I think after you know sitting with it for a while and watching it two times, is that uh, Elvis Presley truly is caught in a trap. In a trap. <laughs> His mind was not suspicious enough. So he ended up in a trap. You know, the story that it tells, I think, the, I mean, it's based on the biographies. You have to assume that this is true, is that poor young Elvis Presley, who grows up poor, and then he's got some success, was very attached to his mother, who was very domineering, it seems like, and was prone to drinking way too much. Uh, and there was obviously a real Oedipal thing in the movie at a certain point, like Elvis is starting to fuck, and his mom's like, don't go out there and hang out with ladies. And he's like... Very, they do this in a very sort of squeamish way. He's like, you'll always be my number one mom. and like puts No, he his said number up. one girl. Number one girl. There you go. Um, and then, of course, she dies when he's relatively young. And then there's this really heavy-handed scene where the, the colonel comes in. And he's like, I'll be your mom now. <laughs> Except he says it all Dutch and creepy. Yeah, he's like, I will be your mother now. And so the, 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 the whole the man is trapped at that point in time because he's like, all of these people, Elvis and any star that becomes famous and rich when they're in their 20s are stunted man children. True. And so he goes on the rest of his life uh, trapped, of course, uh, caught in a trap. Caught in a trap. Um, and, and like sometimes breaking out for a second, but always getting pulled back in. 
by a guy who allegedly, uh, in his uh, army, what, dismissal papers, was <laughs> was diagnosed as a psychopath. This yeah. guy, Colonel Parker, which makes sense if this story that they tell us in the movie is true. When he finally started getting hit with a bunch of, when Colonel Tom started getting hit with a bunch of lawsuits after Elvis died that were essentially, you caught him in a trap. Yeah. That was the lawsuit. <laughs> and he tried to claim... That he was immune <laughs> from the lawsuits. <laughs> he's, like, he's like, I actually, he's like, listen, all right, my name's not Tom Parker. It's like <laughs> Augustus Vandergloop or some shit like that. <laughs> I potentially murdered somebody in the town of Breda in 1923. Who remembers? Yeah, it was, a, it was a different time. And then I stowed away on a ship and just ended up in America, made up a whole story about how I was from West Virginia, even though I have a really thick Dutch accent. He and doesn't. He didn't have a thick <laughs> Dutch accent. Boz Lerman made Tom Hanks, who is also not Dutch, who is in fact a Southern person, <laughs> do a Dutch accent for a real-life man who had a southern accent the number of degrees of insane choices he can't just make one insane choice no, no but the, the shit is funny though because it's like um just some real fucking psychopath like brilliant psychopath shit is to after all of that be like like it's an incredible flex be like you know what? You can't sue me in civil court because I'm not even a citizen of this country. Yeah. I don't even have a country, so you can't take the money back that I absconded from when I put this guy in a trap. <laughs> I mean, that sounds like some psychotic shit to me. I don't know how familiar you or the listeners are with like the types of people who generally try and claim that they're sovereign citizens, yeah. but they're <laughs> A, crazy, B, at least in this country, frequently white supremacists who True. are interested in claiming sovereign citizenship so that they can have their little Nazi compounds. Yeah, and not live in the same country as black and brown people. Right. And and you'll see, you know, there's there's little internet galleries of what their driver's licenses look like. They are the most bootleg shit. It'll be like John Smith, the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> or, you know, Colonel Tom Parker, representing himself, <laughs> yeah. in charge of me, like, eyes present. Height, yes. It's just all, like, nonsense from people who think that they can, like, trick their way out of yeah. ever getting in trouble for anything. Well, but 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 the reason why he thought that, even he after did? Elvis died, is that he tricked this talented, brilliant, troubled man uh, into this trap. And it succeeded for, what, 20 years or so? Yeah. And he made so many millions of dollars off of them. And every time Elvis, you know, in the movie they portray it, like Elvis finds out about his immigration status. Yeah, which, which he never did, yeah. And they also portray him firing um, uh, Colonel Parker from stage at the International Casino, which never happened. But, like, he keeps trying to pull away and he keeps getting pulled back in. But to show, I think, a little bit of Elvis's true character... I was reading up about the scene uh, in the movie where he fires Tom Parker from the stage. He's like, ah, he's a scumbag, blah, 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 you're fired. That didn't happen. What what actually did happen and what that was based on was while Elvis was trapped in this contract <laughs> at this casino because his manager had so many debts that basically the mafia, the mobbed up hotel owners like forced Elvis to stay here for years or whatever. He ended up becoming friends with one of like the working class employees from the hotel who it turns out their partner was really, really sick with cancer. So Elvis used to go down and like visit with them to make them feel better. And that employee who he was friends with ended up getting fired because he wasn't there. There was a policy at the hotel that the, Workers cannot associate with the residents and the guests. And that's, in fact, what Elvis made a big scene about on stage one night, is that this employee friend of his got fired on account of Elvis, you know, just trying to be like a good, decent human being and making like a cancer-ridden person feel better. So that, again, goes to show that this this man, like, despite this image that he had and like this insane life trajectory that he had, seemed like a pretty good-hearted person. Although I will say, Destroyed, to offer another but... side of Elvis that uh, that is never once shown in this movie. They kind of present Elvis as a little lost puppy dog in this movie. But I read uh, Priscilla Presley's memoir, oh. 
And it's either called Me and Elvis or Elvis and Me, I forget which. And she does not say a bad word about him. She just presents a number of facts, and the facts happen to be really fucked up. First and foremost, when they met, she was 14 and he was like 24 or 25. It's fucked up. Already bad. Yeah. And then they started seeing each other more or less immediately, and they didn't consummate their relationship until they were married, she says. But in the meantime... He told her she couldn't have a job because when he called her, he needed to know she was going to pick up, even though he was disappearing for months at a time uh, and seeing other women also. Of course. He also dictated how long her hair could be, Oof. how much makeup she should wear, which in his, to his taste was a lot. He liked a lot of makeup and like a really heavily feminized, like almost drag-like performance mm. of femininity from his woman. Even right down to whether she was allowed to wear prints instead of solid colors. Mm. He did not like for her to wear prints. He thought it made her look cheap. Mm. And all of this is stuff that she just says, like, he had some peculiarities. Oh, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. She's very gracious about it. But I was reading this shit like, first of all, that's crazy. Also... While he's doing all these things, there are just constant descriptions of him eating, like, five bacon sandwiches <laughs> at a time. Does she get into his insane drug use? Because the implication yes. of this movie is that he, he pops a little speed in the go-go, you know, mid-50s when he's young. But and they kind of imply that it's the colonel's fault, and that's absolutely incorrect. Right. He was definitely already into, like... I mean, what you said before, you were kind of joking about how they had guys at the Sorbonne like, <laughs> dedicated to cooking up new drugs for him, but it was kind of true. Yeah. He did have, like, favorite doctors who would, like, walk him through the exact pharmacology that he should be looking for for this or that purpose, and then send him, like, a bespoke collection of drugs. <laughs> yeah. And, like, from the time that he was signed to Sun Records, his first record label, he was already popping amphetamines basically every day. He would take something called Placidil in order to sleep, a mm. bunch of other stuff. And Priscilla got into it in her words because it was the only way she could keep up with him. Like, oh, it was the only yeah. way that, you know, he would be in Graceland. He would have this big entourage and big parties full of people until four or five in the morning. Like, if she wanted to have alone time with her husband... The only way to get it was to be on between, speed with him. Between 4 and 6 a.m., that's when you get your alone time with him. I mean, literally. Well, but they one thing they don't talk about in the movie was his, like, either hypocrisy or self-delusion where he was against, like, the Beatles and drug culture and shit because it was illegal drugs. I think to the point that he went and visited Nixon when Nixon formed the DEA and, like, got, like, a DEA badge from Nixon because he was, like, so anti-drugs. Either he didn't consider all the bespoke pharmacology that was being created to keep, to get him up and down and up and down and up and down all fucking day. He didn't consider the fucking cotton swabs of pure cocaine flown over from <laughs> fucking Germany, from a lab in Germany to be drugs or whatever. Like he, he clearly had a weird idea about what the difference between like grass and just like getting giant shots of amphetamine and heroin at the same time were right. <laughs> from a doctor. And then, I mean, to that end, he was, like, not just an accidental hypocrite where he genuinely thought these were different classes of drug and one was okay and one wasn't. I mean, that seems to have been true. But he was he dropped acid a few times. He and Priscilla oh, took, it together, took it well, together, and shit. it was illegal. Yeah. He just, you know, I think that it bears out in his relationships as well. He wanted to be the one transgressing, breaking rules, and in his mind... Any rules he broke were not real broken rules. Like, yeah. the ones that he followed were the ones that were important to follow. Everything else, and he had this army of sycophants, like, confirming this for him. He had his Memphis Mafia. Yeah, the Memphis Mafia. They were, like, the enablers of him through all that time. When I was watching this movie, and I didn't think about this the first time that I saw it. I, 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 I thought about this last night. It always... And I'm sorry if I'm getting too deep into something that's pretty frivolous like this movie, but it always occurred to me that there was something like destined about rock and roll and like youth culture and like the whole boomer sort of like peace, love, sex, drugs, rock and roll movement to come about. But this movie kind of implies, which might even be the case, that it was 
it, there was nothing natural about it, that it was very much confected by the culture industry, that it took something which was real, <clears throat> which was this incredible confluence of like country music, blues, rhythm and blues, jazz, and this sort of like cross race, but mostly led by black people sort of musical moment in time and made it really, really big. Like, I wonder to what extent like that was that didn't have to happen. Like, did Rocket did Elvis Presley did by C Colonel Parker putting him in there? Did he like literally change history and like make rock and roll into a thing that it wouldn't have been otherwise? It's interesting to think about a counterfactual where like that doesn't happen. I think that the more salient point and also a point that Baz Luhrmann makes with all his movies, you know, he sets them in different times, but they're all stories of decadence and right. of essentially rock and roll lifestyles, yeah. whatever the time period. And I think that the more salient point in that regard is there's been a thread of this same, like terrifying, youthful sexuality yeah. in every form of culture since there's been culture, I mean, I don't know much about, you know, what they were doing for entertainment in ancient Rome, but there was yeah. a distinctly bawdy aspect to, like, yeah. the plays of Aristophanes and, for sure, Shakespeare. Sure. Every other Romeo line and is Juliet. a dick joke. Yeah, Romeo and Juliet is about, like, wayward teens who right. just need to fuck so bad that they end up getting people killed. And I think that what the real trajectory of, of that stuff is is you've got, like, a period of rock and roll followed by a reactive period of relative puritanism. Mm. You've got, you know, the the heavily eroticized jazz culture of the 20s, right. followed by abject poverty, temperance movement, and, you know, a fresh vein of puritanism. And I think that it just keeps cycling and cycling, and there are, you know, little miniature cycles as well. And I think that... Maybe the problem is that we're just right in the middle of it. Of a depressive cycle. And can't mean? see, yeah. you know, the forest for the trees, so to speak. Yeah. But I am for sure curious as to what, which of the two aspects our current culture is going to end up being categorized as. Are mm. we in a sex time or are we in a Puritan time? I, I think all the, the sex stats point to people are really fucking like, you know, like they, they do those stats of how many, how much sex like young Oh, but Zoomers those are, are always having. so targeted. You know, yeah. I, I don't think that it's possible to get good information about the time you're living in while you're still in that time. All the survey, you know, there's no such thing as a survey that isn't skewed, right? Yeah. There's no such thing as a completely untainted sample pool. And all of these, you know, how much sex are you having type surveys of the culture are really just attempts to to put a name to something that by definition can't have one yet. It's still going on. Maybe the difference is because you mentioned the twenties, which I think is very, it's very apt here. Like, cause the twenties has jazz and it has like the Harlem Renaissance and it has uh, poetry and it's got all sorts of like sort of modernist impulses to it. But then that gets cut, cut short by the great depression. Maybe what's different and a thing that we can actually give the boomers credit for, if we can give them credit is that, the rise of rock and roll happens politically also. It yeah. like goes along along with the civil rights movement, which is this like rightfully very heroic moment in American history. And so the changes aren't just commercial. It's this highly commercialized sort of product. It's the creation of a capitalist youth culture, essentially, in the United States. But also it transforms itself into this like optimistic civil rights sort of political change uh, movement and ideology that really does truly affect the culture in ways that, except for, I guess you could say LGBT in the yeah. 1990s, uh, really is not happening right now. And maybe it was like a very particular, we don't, we like, there was segregation. Elvis comes around in a time of segregation. By the time Elvis is doing his, his swan song and dying or, or even before that, when he's doing his big giant shows in Las Vegas or whatever, de jure and formally segregation is over like this is a huge victory so it, it, it happens at a time when like american society is riding this wave of sort of progress you yeah know? you know what it is is that after these sexy bold cultural periods every single time the culture needs a period of just resting on its laurels yeah. and being like you know 
well, this this music was being made, but then it was during segregation and, and you know, colored sections versus white nights at the black clubs, mm. and that was bad. But we solved that, so let's just say fuck it and form sticks or whatever. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's always let's like... Let's listen to James Taylor and right. Hall and Oates. I think that's at least part of where the the impulse towards reaction comes from. Yeah. And I think that it's going to be, it's going to start happening to the millennials soon. If it hasn't already is like this idea of what more do you want? We solved it. We solved right. something yeah. for you ungrateful young ones. And then the young ones hear that shit and are infuriated by it. And rightly so every time. And they go out and they make their own sexy thing. Right. And on and on it goes. And Boz Lerman is there at every turn. <laughs> at the vanguard. To turn it into captivating bad shittery. To fucking point out the trap. Not just the trap <laughs> that was set by the manager, but the trap that Elvis indeed himself not just sang about, <laughs> but entered into in his own life as he sung without a suspicious mind, about suspicious minds. He was being trapped. He himself was caught in the very trap <laughs> of which... He sang in his song about being caught in a trap. And verily, I say unto you, <laughs> are, are we as the audience, are we as objects of history, not ourselves trapped by the same sort of forces that trapped Elvis Presley? Are we not thrust into a carnival that Boz Lerman <laughs> is pointing us to? Aren't we all, in some sense, trapped just as Elvis was trapped in the International Hotel? Aren't we all just spinning our wheels as history grinds forward around us? I think there's a lot to be said for that. I think that Boz Lerman is basically like the angles of our time. Well, I think that that's as good of a note to end on as any. It's and incoherent I, uh, as fuck. I don't know. I just felt like going off. <laughs> yeah, no, you, as is your right. Um, I am going to close out with a quote from the man himself, Elvis. Uh, who was? Boss. <laughs> it's not Boz. I don't think he talks. I've never seen him talk, that's and I'm not so interested. Cool. I'm yeah, not interested I don't in him talking. Hear any, I just want him to keep making a thousand movies a year. Yeah, that's right. But Elvis, it turns out, was like a big reader. He loved to read, and he especially loved like philosophy books, books about metaphysics. He was very philosophical mind on top of the karate. Mm -hmm. And then he and Priscilla were once having an argument, and or no, he like offered her some book that he had really loved, and she wasn't interested in it. And his honest to god response, and this really shows what it does to your ego to have just a Memphis Mafia's yeah. worth of people telling you how cool you are all the time. And all the money in the world and you're just like this rock god. What he said to his wife who said, no thank you, I don't want to read that book is, things will never work out between us, Scylla, because you don't show any interest in me or my philosophies. <laughs> Plural. Me and my many various philosophies of which I enjoy. <laughs> I, and yet one of those philosophies wasn't not getting caught in a trap. I, Unbelievable. <laughs> All your metaphysics in the world, sir, and you couldn't avoid getting caught a in a trap. A simple trap. The oldest trap in the book. Just a box with a stick holding it up and a string <laughs> and a plate of bacon peanut butter sandwiches. You wrote a song about having a suspicious mind and yet when the time came, your mind was not suspicious enough to stay out of the trap. Well, thanks so much, patrons, for tuning in to this bonus episode. You can find my fiancé in my house, or if you don't have my address, which I hope you don't, you can find him at his podcast, The Antifada, and on Twitter at As a Worker. And you already know where to find me, and we don't need to talk about that. <laughs> and that's it. Yeah, all I would say is thanks for having me, and maybe we should do a monthly like movie series. The yeah. cop rock thing was a lot of fun. This was a lot of fun. I feel like we already watch a lot of cultural products. We might as well keep doing it. Yeah, we watch TV together for like nine hours a day. So if you think that it would be fun for us to do like a monthly movie series, sound off in the sound comments. Off. Do not sound off if you don't think it would be fun. I'm not accepting criticism at this time. Yeah, thank you. Love you. Bye. Bye.